Hello, Climate Change. That's the name of my podcast. Um, It's about waking up and taking action one conversation at a time. Yeah, so I set this up so that I can have conversations with my friends and others, and um, partly just because it's on my mind a lot, and I want to learn more, and also because I think having conversations about it, because it's such an overwhelming topic, and we feel kind of powerless about it, and overwhelmed, overwhelmed, I said the overwhelmed twice, but you know what I mean. I guess it's appropriate to say it twice, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> so anyway, today... Um, Today, I'm very happy to be sitting here with my friend, Pat Bow. Hi, Pat. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, and, you know, I don't know that I can properly introduce you, Pat. Why don't you tell us a few things that, that um, would be useful for people to know about you? Well, <clears throat> I work at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Right. I've worked there since the 1970s. Okay. I've been in uh, hazardous waste. I was there in the hazardous waste section when it was first formed, before there was a hazardous waste program, and uh, was instrumental in in forming that hazardous waste management program for the state of Connecticut. Uh, I moved from there to uh, water enforcement uh, operations uh, and also uh, site discovery, which is... uh, finding contaminated sites around the state that need to be remediated. From that group, I moved to the air compliance uh, group, Mm. and that group is involved in uh, doing uh, the regulatory work and inspection work associated with uh, air emissions. Uh, Large stacks that we think of, like smokestacks from power plants, as well as smaller things like dry cleaners and uh, even uh, body shops mm-hmm. and, uh, and paint shops, uh, cleaning parts before they are plated with, uh, with a chrome or mm-hmm. copper or, or some other metal. All of those things have significant air emissions, mm-hmm. and as a result, they need to be managed and uh, and accounted for in terms of the load of pollutants that actually uh, go out into the atmosphere around us. Wow. It's all like so I'm so fascinated by all of it and so excited that, that I mean it was on a whim that I even asked you if you would do this with me and and like once we started talking I realized why hadn't I thought of this before like yep. why was it a whim this is so so relevant uh, it is important stuff yeah and uh, now since 2006 I've been uh, the director of the remediation division mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this division basically handles uh, cleanup of the environment right. associated with uh, certain kinds of facilities uh, where, where there are releases on a regular basis. Uh, certain things have to be registered when you transfer the ownership of properties or businesses, and then their sites have to be cleaned up. We also deal with uh, contamination from things as simple and mundane as too much salt being put on the road, contaminating someone's uh, well nearby to dry cleaner program, an urban site development program, the Brownfield program, uh, the state Superfund program, and the federal Superfund programs uh, associated state functions that, uh, that support that federal program. So, so we have a wide range yeah. of things that we do. And I was going to ask you about the range, but I think I need to, to like 
sort of back up a little and and get a sense of like I don't want to be mean to myself but the way it's coming into my mind is like I'm an ostrich just taking my head out of the sand and trying to you know get my mind around not only climate change and all of the accompanying issues um, but but even just the basics of how what systems are in place what our government does how it works how these different agencies interact so all right so so what i do know is the department of energy and environmental protection that there's a similar kind of agency in each state is that correct Generally, most states have a similar agency. Mm-hmm. And we're some, talking about the United States because yes. I actually have listeners out of the United States. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We don't need to be experts on any of this. But if you know more beyond the states, right. that's good to uh, know, too. <clears throat> most states in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, have an agency similar. In some cases, uh, that agency is very small mm-hmm. and it is the county that largely handles uh, the regulatory process, mm-hmm. especially in larger states. Yeah. Connecticut is a small state. It has eight counties by name. It has zero counties by uh, administration. What, is, what do you mean by name, uh, by administration? Well, sure take uh, Wyndham County. Okay. There are no Wyndham County taxes that are collected in Connecticut. Okay, right. There are no Wyndham County sheriffs there are no Wyndham County courts right. no Wyndham County mm-hmm. uh, line crews or road crews they're either state roads or they're municipal town roads road, which means the uh, town is <clears throat> the town takes responsibility for them correct okay so uh, Connecticut is unique uh, as far as I know amongst all 50 states and in Certainly, regulatory process for the big um, programs such as waste management and uh, air management and water management, you really can't regulate those effectively at, uh, at a municipal level. You really look, you need to look at those at the state and national level because mm-hmm. they're, they're so big, they're so complex, and you really need a uniformity of program across uh, wide areas. Uh, you can't have uh, one town be a free for all and the other one be, uh, you know, highly regulated and expect to really have any kind of uh, progress. And you can't have any kind of consistency mm-hmm. uh, unless you have broad support across the uh, uh, the areas. And because it's such a small state, even though it's dense in population, it seems like it would be redundant to have so many people, um, that the, to have expertise in each town around all of these probably deep um, kind of well of knowledge that you need to actually be able to monitor and, and um, oversee all these different operations would be pretty intense. Correct, uh, for sure. Uh, you'd have uh, a very difficult time getting uh, people <clears throat> in any given town to do uh, all of those programs. Uh, you know, towns have enough difficulty getting people to do zoning or wetlands uh, and do it correctly and effectively. Uh, to be experts in the technology for air emission control uh, or hazardous waste control uh, is very difficult. And uh, to think that you're going to get somebody who can do all of those things is uh, is just a, a figment of imagination. So doing air control at this point, are you looking at carbon 
The the remediation division where I'm working now oh, doesn't right. doesn't do that work. Oh, you were our, in air and then our, you moved to yes, remediation. Yes, I, I right. was in the air bureau and then moved to the remediation mm-hmm. division. But <clears throat> looking at carbon as a pollutant is something that is right on the very forefront of uh, decision making in both Washington and in the states. The emission of carbon dioxide, the emission of very small particles. Uh, are things that uh, do influence our uh, climate. Mm-hmm. They influence the quality of life uh, near the plants as well as uh, at great distances. Connecticut receives uh, a significant load of pollution from large coal plants, uh, for example, in Ohio Valley and uh, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Some cases, individual plants there emit more pollutant than all of the sources in Connecticut put together annually. Wow. And there are some stacks that go up there over a 1,000 feet high. And if you are from Connecticut and you've ever driven on I-95 going through Bridgeport, you'll see a stack, a very tall stack there, and it is uh, a bit short of 500 feet. So imagine a, a stack almost... Uh, two and a half times the height of that stack. And uh, people who live near those plants need those stacks to be that high or they would be poisoned at the ground level. And, uh, of course, uh, when you put things into the air through a smokestack, uh, what you're really doing is getting it to a position where it will dilute uh, into the atmosphere before it comes back down to the ground. Mm. So we're injecting enormous amounts of carbon dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and other materials into the atmosphere each year as part of the waste from the burning of fuel. Different fuels will give you a different amount of carbon dioxide or particulate or or nitrogen oxides uh, than others. Is nitrogen oxide considered... Uh, uh, greenhouse gas? Uh, I don't actually know about nitrogen oxides specifically, but the CO2 is certainly. Uh, As are uh, certain chlorofluorocarbons and other uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons. Natural gas and propane, for example, themselves end up being greenhouse gases uh, if they're released and they're not uh, combusted on the way up. And uh, then if you combust them, uh, those gases uh, contribute to the CO2 load. Mm. So there's no absolute easy, quick way to uh, come to a solution on those kinds Mm. of pollutants. Is the DEEP looking at methane leaks in the Algonquin pipeline, do you know? I know Uh, they're planning to expand that. Which yeah, I, I don't believe uh, that we do any specific uh, leak detection mm-hmm. on those uh, pipelines. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, program where people who own the pipelines uh, are required to uh, periodically uh, inspect them. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that there are dirt roads that follow the various uh, uh, pipelines. Uh, there are... Uh, points where they cross uh, roads and, uh, and and other areas of the state. And 
they use very sensitive instruments as they patrol those periodically to look for uh, small leaks. Mm -hmm. And they do maintenance on lines like that. Uh, they shut them down. They purge them. And uh, when they do that, then they go, they go through and do maintenance and inspection on the valving and on, on the piping itself as well. What does that mean to purge them? When you want to work on a gas pipeline, mm -hmm. you basically shut the valves off on both ends of the pipeline so it's not going to a destination and it's not coming in from a gas field mm -hmm. under, under high pressure. Right. You basically isolate that section. It's like taking your garden hose, taking the nozzle off one end, and disconnecting the other end from the house. Mm -hmm. So you have a, basically a pipe with no gas in it. Well, but if you so, take the, the pipe off the, um, the garden hose off the house, there's going to be still have water. Correct. Inside. So the process you would go through of basically picking one end of that hose up mm -hmm. and put, holding it over your head and then going hand over hand uh, until you got to the other end, basically letting the water drain out as you went. Mm -hmm. uh, that's purging the pipe of the water. So then at that point, that's letting methane go into the air? Correct. Yeah. When, they, when they have to seal off both ends of the pipe, they'll open uh, the pipe up then, and they'll blow air inert gas into the pipeline, and they'll blow that gas uh, out to the atmosphere. And that has to be done because pressure builds up too much, or why? Nope, uh, it's it's not something they do on a on a super regular basis. But uh, if they have to repair a valve, oh, I see. Uh, you can't repair the valve With while the gas, the gas is right. going through it. You can't repair the valve if you just shut the valve off and there's high pressure gas on one side and nothing on the other. Uh, you you have to shut the pipe down. You have to isolate maybe uh, anywhere from 100 yards to, uh, right. to a mile or two, uh, depending on your valving designs. Right. The, basically, the point is, for me, the point is, there's many points to be made, but one of them is that there's no way you're not going to have methane leaking if you're going to have pipelines. Uh, yeah, there, there'll always be some small yeah. amount. But uh, pipelines uh, that we see here in Connecticut so far, uh, and, and I would not anticipate a degradation of you know anything that would come in new. Mm -hmm. uh, pipelines that we see are uh, well maintained. They are inspected frequently mm -hmm. by the uh, the gas companies themselves, mm -hmm. and uh, they basically perform the maintenance uh, on those to keep them up to snuff uh, mm -hmm. as they go through. And I, and I mean, I think that there's people who would feel uh, mistrustful of the idea that the that the companies are maintaining and doing those testing themselves and nobody else is overseeing that. But to me, it feels like I could see that point. But I also think that their their interest is their bottom line and having leaks is going to is not useful to them either. Right. So. If if they have a leak. First off, they, they lose the product right. that they're trying to sell. Right. Uh, second off, all of the natural gas being pushed through the pipelines is uh, basically uh, tagged with an odorant. Mm. And that right. odor is what you, when you say, I smell gas, mm. it is that artificial odor that is added to the gas yeah. that you're smelling. Okay. The gas itself is completely odorless and colorless. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, when, in fact, when they purge a line, 
the natural gas being lighter than air rises very quickly away from the ground. Mm -hmm. The uh, indicator that they add to the gas is heavier than air. Mm -hmm. And that gas will stay close to the ground near where it's released mm -hmm. for, for a bit of time. And sometimes people we'll will smell actually it, right? smell that. And, uh, I see. and so if they were losing gas through either the pipe or through a, uh, a valve system uh, or through their pumping and pressurization system, uh, people very close to that plant uh, or to that pipe or to that valve would be smelling it and, and smelling it very strongly. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, there'd be complaints that would come in and then there'd have to be responses, uh, you know, immediately to that, to that uh, complaint. And, and that's really what happens if, uh, if they're going to purge a line very often, they will notify uh, folks in the area that the line is being worked on and that you might smell the gas, but that it's being purged. Mm -hmm. now, I haven't done work myself with the gas companies on that now for several years, but uh, when we were doing that kind of work, uh, we would periodically get notices mm -hmm. if they were going to purge a line. Mm -hmm. You mentioned to me um, when we were talking about doing this um, that, that, the, that the DEEP, the DEP, has a division that's looking at um, climate change, and as an as is there is that did I get that right? They're basically in the uh, in the energy side. Uh, there are people who are looking at uh, climate change issues and uh, and trying to increase the use of uh, uh, zero emissions or very small emissions uh, types of, of options. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, wind, water, solar, uh, those things that uh, can, through a small attributable emission, hopefully as, as you make the, the initial device, whether it be a, a turbine for air or water or a solar array, uh, then you get many, many years of essentially emission-free uh, uh, oil and gasoline-free uh, energy that can be generated and made into electricity and pushed out through the grid. So you uh, you have uh, a lot of uh, solar arrays that you see being built now uh, in yards and, mm -hmm. and on homes, uh, roof uh, of homes. Uh, we also see uh, a lot of folks who are in possession of a, uh, a closed landfill, the old town dump, for example. Uh, what do you put on the town dump? <clears throat> hmm. You can't put housing on it. Uh, you can't easily make many of them into parks. Uh, you can't put uh, industries on them. You can't build buildings on them effectively. And uh, you really don't want people to live and play and work on top of a landfill. <laughs> they, they have to be kept free of trees because you don't want the roots growing down into the landfill structure itself and then displacing the cap by their root and trunk structure. Right. So in many cases, uh, they start to put uh, uh, solar arrays on the landfills. 
makes so much sense. Uh, well, so at this point in Connecticut, what are we mostly doing with our waste? Uh, much of our waste is recycled. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've just gone through uh, a session in the legislature where they're trying to establish uh, greater incentives and tighter goals for getting a larger percentage of our waste recycled. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do we do? What are we doing with the stuff that we're not recycling? Right now, uh, there are some places in Connecticut that uh, incinerate that waste, mm-hmm. and uh, they basically uh, take that material from your doorstep. Uh, they take it in a large truck. Uh, some cases, they go to a transfer station, and then they transship it to a uh, an incinerator. The incinerators burn the waste, and they... Uh, take the heat and they use that to generate steam which generates uh, pressure which then spins a turbine they make electricity and they feed electricity back to the grid mm. and are the incinerators in Connecticut that are uh, there are several in Connecticut yeah. uh, a lot of our waste now though is also being shipped out of state uh, on rail cars and in some cases uh, being trucked out of state and uh there are large landfills in other states uh, that will accept some of that waste, at least for now. Yeah. Um, it's a false uh, economy to think that uh, people in other states will forever want Connecticut's garbage yeah. uh, to show up on their doorstep. Right. So one thing that's been on my mind is that we live in this state that's basically among the wealthiest little areas of the world, um, though we have a lot of poverty as well. Um, and, um, it feels like to me that it would make sense for us to become leaders in terms of turning things around. And I would like you to tell me what you think would need to happen for that to be the case. And you, like I said, I don't expect you to be an expert here, but you're a Connecticut resident who's got a probably a closer, um, closer to having a finger on a, on a pulse of all of this than I do. So I'd love to hear what you think. Well, I think uh, first off that uh, Connecticut has had a significant leadership role in uh, in driving many of uh, the regulatory programs that have taken hold at the federal level. Um, Some of Connecticut's programs uh, have been uh, ahead of of, of some of the federal programs as well, and uh, and they've actually, I think, turned out uh, better in many cases. Uh, But we'll take a look even now at the uh, person who is the head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She's a former uh, Connecticut commissioner. Right. Um, she's not the only Connecticut person that's uh, that's been in that that role in the past uh, either. So uh, we've had uh, a large number of uh, folks from Connecticut uh, in the U.S. EPA in leadership positions. So that sort of export of talent uh, to D.C has been instrumental in development of a lot of the programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
the regional greenhouse gas initiatives uh, were pioneered here in New England and, uh, and then uh, in uh, later incarnation uh, moving to the, uh, uh, you know, to the federal level. Mm-hmm. And you see, I think, the future uh, needing some fairly large programs uh, that deal with, uh, for instance, the uh, uh, the burning of coal and uh, and other large scale emissions, uh, but you need also a blend at the grassroots level. And uh, in places you mentioned, Connecticut is fairly wealthy. In places where there are uh, lots of uh, rich folks uh, running around. Uh, you can get uh, sort of a, uh, a program of the day or program of the year that might be followed uh, in some cases a little easier than you can in other places. Uh, but to sustain these programs, we need not just uh, you know a flash in the pan. Uh, somebody thinks uh, you know program X is a good program this week. Uh, these programs need to be uh, carefully thought through. They need to be established, and they need to be uh, nurtured and, and, and fostered uh, through time. They're not just uh, something that you can uh, kickstart and throw it on autopilot and forget about it. So can you, can you use an example? Uh, recycling. Okay. Uh, you know, of, of so many things that we do. Uh, up until this year, we recycled uh, soda and beer bottles. We didn't recycle juice or water bottles. And now you can recycle water bottles with a deposit on them. Mm. Uh, and uh, years ago, when the first bottle bill was uh, coming to fruition, uh, there was a significant amount of opposition saying that it wouldn't work. Mm. And uh, that's why they, uh, they only went to the limited uh, soda and beer market in terms of uh, focusing the, the recycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, now they've, they've moved out and they're picking up more and more containers. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think that uh, it wouldn't hurt if the uh, deposits were slightly larger than a nickel. Mm-hmm. Uh, some cases they are. Uh, but uh, I think you see in Connecticut, uh, based on the fights over what to do with the excess bottle deposits, uh, you find that uh, a significant number of bottles are purchased and never returned. And that's because the people who buy them uh, don't feel motivated by that nickel uh, to take that bottle back and, and get their deposit. Mm. Uh, they toss the bottle. Uh, you see people on the sides of roads occasionally picking cans up. Yeah. But uh, many cases, folks just throw it in the trash with the other bottles and cans and other things. And uh, we don't have uh, recycling for cans. We uh, don't have recycling for cans? There's no, well, there's no deposit on a can. You don't buy a soup can and oh, pay a deposit kind of on it. Not and, like a soda can. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So if you were to buy a soup can, you don't get uh, a deposit 
uh, mm. on the soup can. Mm. Uh, you know, that depends right. on the person at their home uh, washing that can out, mm. tossing that can into one of the mm. blue bins for recycle. Yeah. And many people uh, don't separate their trash into uh, what is truly recyclable yeah. and what is truly trash that mm. has to be disposed of so, through some other mechanism. To me, this the recycling issue... I think that's gotten such a lot of attention. I mean, um, you know, there are people who feel so deeply about how we're caring for the environment and and they focus their energy on cleaning out their peanut butter jar. And and as important as that is to a certain extent. Like I find I'm you know, I find myself in moments where I've got this dirty peanut butter the peanut butter jar is just that's the focal point for me because it's such a pain in the butt to clean out a peanut butter jar. And it's so it feel it makes you feel so powerless that this is all like this is all that we're told in and and I'm not saying who who's telling us this that the only message that's getting through it seems in a lot of cases is recycle and where it looks like to me it looks like we need much bigger reorientation to our consumer lifestyle and like even the fact that you mentioned we don't recycle a soup can um the fact that it's never occurred to me sort of points out for my own example of my own in my own self that i mean i recycle my soup cans that's not a big deal but um um that it, it that that we we focus narrowly when i was a kid and my dad listens to this podcast so forgive me dad but when i was a kid there was a period of time when i lived with my father and he focused meticulously on keeping the kitchen sink clean but did not notice the dust building up on the windowsill above it and and i i understood that that was an area where he felt some control and you know but that it just didn't occur to him, you know, that, you know, the, the, the wider picture and, and sorry, dad, sorry, 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 please forgive me. But I kind of feel like some of us, including me, are in that same kind of trap in our thinking that we, like it's this narrow little window we're given of having some power to make things better. That's probably true. Yeah. And uh, I would suggest, though, not to lose sight of the fact that the pieces that you focus on and do well, whether it be the sink that your dad was working on yeah. or whether it be the windowsill that you noticed, <laughs> uh, if you work together and you work as a team and you work consistently, right. uh, then you can get lots of things done. Uh, if you have uh, you know, two brains and two hands working on a project... Or maybe four hands. Uh, or four. <laughs> uh, you, know, you, would, you would have... Uh, more work done. Right. And the more brains you put to power on it, the more hands you put to power on it, the better quality work that you'll end up with, the more thorough and the more various things and variety of things that you'll be able to tackle. So as you tackle one thing and, and do it well, right. knowing that that is going to have a positive effect for the next generation or two or three generations... Mm -hmm. Uh, you can be happy and, and proud that you're doing that yeah. and doing it effectively. And uh, then if somebody else thinks of something else to do that uh, dovetails with what you're doing, 
all of these things link together. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a giant uh, chain or, or a giant polymer. Uh, sometimes you think of it as uh, the old days in the medieval times, they had uh, suits of armor that were made up of chain mail. Mm-hmm. The chain mail is made up of thousands and thousands of little links of chain all interconnected to one another. And each provides a certain amount of protection. Each relies on the chain link next to it for additional protection and support. So every link has got four other links touching it and holding it together. Mm. So as people, each do one task and are juxtaposed to other people who are doing another task that is similar. Yeah. Uh, as, you, as you move through society, everybody increases the collective load, mm-hmm. and the load is very much easier to lift. So well said. Thank you. That was really great. I wanted to ask you personally, like, you know, what does it, does it trouble you? What, how do you see it as just kind of now we're stepping way back from the beginning of our conversation to just, I mean, we just took it as a given that this was an issue that needs to be addressed, but I, I didn't want to assume anything about how you saw things. Something started out, people just called it global warming. Right. And certainly we do see uh, a great deal of melting going on. Uh, both in the Arctic as well as in Antarctica. Certainly, if you went to uh, Connecticut's coast uh, on some of the uh, high, what's called a spring tide uh, of the uh, year and of of each month, uh, you will find uh, uh, roads are regularly inundated at high tide, Hmm. even without a storm. No storm surge, it's just high tide, uh, you you don't leave your cottage and, and drive to town uh, until the tide drops a little because uh, there there's water over the roadway. Wow, I knew that was happening in Florida, but I didn't realize it was uh, happening. That there. happens in Connecticut mm-hmm. as well. In, in my division, we're dealing with uh, remediation. Uh, in some cases, we're capping uh, contaminated uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these areas are near the uh, the ocean or at least near rivers and near Long Island Sound. And if the remedial uh, action is uh, close uh, to a river or to the sound, we have to give thought to uh, where is the sea level, where is the water level going to be in in 25 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. Because if you're capping something, the purpose is to basically isolate that from society. And if you're going to isolate it from society, uh, that means that in 25 or 50 years, you don't want a storm to come through and rip the cap off Mm -hmm. and distribute this stuff willy-nilly all over the town or all over the state. Yeah, and but also, wow. I mean, the the whole idea that we just, we have all this pollutants that we're just like putting underground and trying to sequester rather than, let's quit this. <laughs> That's the way I'm thinking. Sort of one analogy that I've, I've heard used uh, is like what we're doing to the earth would be the same thing as if you were going into your house in the wintertime and burning the doors and the trim and the walls. 
You're not living in it. You're, you're consuming it as you, as you live in it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, today you're going to break up a door. Tomorrow you're going to take a hammer and a crowbar and peel the trim off the windows and off the doors and walls and burn that to keep warm rather than close the window, <laughs> rather than caulk the, uh, you know, the infiltration points, right. rather than insulate the walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're living on earth, and rather than recycle, rather than uh, use renewable energy, you're consuming the earth and its resources. And, uh, and you're, you're basically going through the content of your house mm-hmm. and destroying it as you in fact live in the house right. to the point where you know you start to take down floor joists mm-hmm. and you burn them and you start you know now the now the roof doesn't stay stable and then the next time the really the bad wind comes the whole house will keel over mm. uh, you know you you've just you you've gutted it and you're burning and destroying uh, because you you won't you know you, you won't do something else to make it last right and if you don't make the earth last uh, you know you've got no place else to go right you will have you know massive population crash mm-hmm. uh, you know and, and population crash is easy to say but you'll have millions of people starving yeah right so you see a lot of immigration pressure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just uh, you know a thousand people or ten thousand yeah. people trying to come to a particular country, but you see millions of people displaced. Mm-hmm. You see places that used to support crops now not able to support crops because it doesn't rain there anymore. Right. Uh, you see what's happening in California right yes. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a large number of people depend on the agricultural products. Right from the Central Valley in California. Yeah, and we depend on a lot of our produce That's comes from there. That's a quarter of the U.S. produce comes out of that one valley. Wow. wow. So, and uh, they're about to run out of water. And, and they're about to run out of water. Yeah. You know, they might be looking at, uh, you know, a, a drought that might last uh, years, mm-hmm. many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, one point... The, well, it has been something like four... Four years. Right, but they have talked about the last hundred have been mm-hmm. wetter than the previous thousand. Oh, okay. So they're not talking a drought in terms of three years, four years worth of drought. They're talking a drought that's going to last several hundred years. Right. So you have to be careful with your water. Yeah. Uh, but does that apply to us? I mean, that's one thing that I have a little confusion about because we've had drought droughts here in the in the summer temporarily and we've never our well doesn't go dry and so i ask myself do i need to be i mean because i have well water we're not on a on a city wide and you system. have a septic system i have a septic so system. you take water out of the ground on one side of the house yeah you process it for eating drinking bathing cleaning and you put it back into the ground on the other side of the house well, I think that they're both actually quite close to each well, other. Well, they, they might be. <laughs> Unfortunately. But I'm, I'm, I'm just using that as an example. Yes, yeah. There, you're, you're sort of borrowing that on a very small scale mm-hmm. from the ground and returning it back to the ground, mm-hmm. 
with relatively little loss mm -hmm. to evaporation. Mm -hmm. Is there any benefit to anyone if I'm collecting my rainwater to water my garden instead of um, well, using the hose? Well, uh, if you use the hose, where did that water come from? It that's came from, from the ground, yeah. and you had to use electricity to pump it. Oh, that's a good point. And then not only that, not only you're paying for it, but that electricity had to come from somewhere. And so far, that we're not... That could be burned coal, right. burned natural gas, uh, solar, mm -hmm. you name it. Right. But, but you're using electricity to pump that water out of the ground. Good point. So you use less electricity, mm -hmm. uh, you do less damage to the environment. Early on in our conversation, you were talking about um, the smokestacks um, in Virginia that are, it sounded like you were saying, are the, the pollution from those are in, impacting us. They impact us yes, significantly. Yes, I wanted to make that much clearer. Right. So go ahead. Uh, in U.S. EPA has an attainment program. An attainment program? To attain clean air. Okay. And when it was first developed, it sort of made the assumption that the reason you have bad air in wherever, mm -hmm. and just for our argument, Connecticut, is because you have too many cars emitting too much stuff out the back end of the car, mm -hmm. and too many industries emitting stuff out of their smokestacks. So they spent 30 years uh, upgrading car emissions uh, controls so that the emission from the car was less and less and less toxic and less onerous. Uh, they spent uh, years reducing the kinds of uh, pollution that came from things like coal-burning power plants, uh, gas-burning power plants, furnaces, uh, you, you name it, uh, as so that you would reduce uh, the gases that create ozone. Uh, in the summer when you get high heat, high light intensity, high heat intensity, and lots of pollutants. And Connecticut's uh, DEP scientists years ago finally figured out that even if you had everybody in Connecticut turn off their car for a day, turn off their furnace for a day, and you turned off all of the industry in Connecticut for a day, mm -hmm we would still have situations where the air in Connecticut would violate the ozone standard. And the reason for that is that contaminants are transported long distances when they are injected into the atmosphere at high altitudes. Uh, so if, uh, if we looked at where those contaminants were coming from, they come in from everywhere from New York City all the way down through some of these very massive plants uh, that are power plants in the uh, in the eastern edge of the Midwest, and they reach all the way over to the uh, to the East Coast uh, with their footprint of impact, and that creates uh, some of the ozone problems here, and that's why, in addition to the regulatory activities that we've done in Connecticut. We've teamed up, uh, and, and not recently, and this has been a years-long uh, uh, partnership between the Attorney General's office and the regulatory agencies to uh, push the EPA, to push uh, regulation and push enforcement on, uh, you know, on plants that are located outside of Connecticut. These are, you know, the, the concept of living downstream. Yeah. 
is a long, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a long held component. Mm-hmm. The people that uh, throw stuff into the river upstream have no regard for the people downstream who are using that same river to get drinking water. Right. Everybody's downstream from somebody else on a global basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no absolute upstream mm-hmm. and there's no absolute downstream. Right. So, <clears throat> again, you're, you're looking at trying to live in a, a single entity, the, the world. Yeah. And you have to protect it. And you have to utilize the resources that you have very carefully. Uh, you know, a thousand years ago, people were only using uh, things that would grow back naturally. Pretty much trees and, and crops. Uh, now... Uh, people are mining resources out of the earth, uh, digging coal, pumping oil, mm-hmm. uh, pumping gas out of the ground. Uh, at some point or another, you change uh, the balance. And you can do that for a while. It's just like if you got 10000 bucks in the bank and you make $1,000 a month. Well, for 10 months... You can live like you're making $2,000 a month. Right. Then you're going to be empty, and you're down to just 1000 a month, and you have no reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any resource usage, if there's no new resource coming in, you've got to be incredibly careful as to how you use that resource that you have. Right. Uh, you know, if you have one car and you could never, ever, ever buy another car, you'd have to be very careful with the car you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have one Earth. We have to be very, very careful with this one Earth yeah. because we don't have another one. Yeah. Nicely said. Thank you, Pat. You're welcome. This is great. Is there is there anything else that you think people should know? Oh, there are tens of thousands tens of, of thousand things. things well we'll have to do this <laughs> sure. again then <laughs> at some point i appreciate it very much you're welcome and i will send you the link um let me just say for people listening that this was hello climate change you can subscribe on itunes if you haven't already or stitcher and you can leave me reviews and comments um through itunes or, or stitcher or on my website hellocc.info i'd love to hear from you i'd love to have you join the conversation Leave me, uh, send me, um, voice, you know, comments too. I could put those right into the podcast. Um, and if you have questions that you think Pat could answer for you, um, I can, I see him all the time. We ride bikes together. So I'll ask him and, um, pass along your questions. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Pat.